Good evening, everyone. Welcome. How are you all doing tonight? How are you all doing? Are you doing all right? Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. My name is Molly Quinn. I'm the Director of Public Programming here at Housing Works Bookstore. We're so excited to have you all in our house tonight and very excited to be hosting. Uh, this is some of, of many things we're hosting this week for the Penn World Voices Festival, which is a really lucky thing that we get to take a part of. So before we get started with our amazing panel, I'm just gonna take a few minutes to tell you a few things about Housing Works and all of the work that this organization does. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses that sustain our efforts. So this bookstore is part of that last thing. This is one of our entrepreneurial businesses. And the way that works is that every single thing in this bookstore is donated to us. All of these books and movies and LPs and our team of booksellers and bartenders and baristas is made up of people who are volunteering their time, which is really wonderful. So we hope as you buy a beer tonight or a book or a coffee from our cafe, you give them an extra special thank you and a smile. There are a number of ways that you can get involved here at Housing Works and support all of the work that this organization is a part of. You can donate your old books, you can volunteer your time, you can host events just like tonight's here. You can also host private events here at Housing Works. Almost every single weekend we rent out the space for weddings and other special events. So if you happen to be looking for a venue to use in that way, we hope you will look online on our rentals page online, which has all of that information. There are a number of ways uh, that you can keep in touch with all of the exciting things that we have going on here at Housing Works. We have literary events and comedy and music events, just like, uh, just like Penn Festival and other amazing things that happen on our weeknights all year long. All of that information is always online at housingworks.org slash events, and it's also on all of our social media. If you follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at housingworksbks, you can keep up with all the wonderful things that we have going on here. All right, so that's just a little bit about Housing Works. Uh, I just want to say, of course, a huge thank you to PEN America for bringing this wonderful festival to part of our bookstore, and we're really honored and excited to be hosting tonight. So I'm going to say just a few, two quick sentences about tonight's moderator who is going to join you after we play a short video. So I'm going to tell you someone's bio, and then there's going to be a video, and then that person's going to come on stage. So you got to keep a lot in your head, but I feel like you guys can do that. All right, so our moderator tonight, who will also be introducing all of our panelists and getting everything going, will be the wonderful Belinda McKeon. Belinda's the author of two books, Solace and Tender. Tender was published last year and is available now in paperback. She teaches at Rutgers and is also an incredible playwright. All right, here we go. Thank you so much for coming out. Words, they're just words. In Turkey, President Erdogan uses words to describe journalists he doesn't like. He calls them ignorant, agents of subversion, foreign spies, terrorists. As of January, at least 151 writers and journalists in Turkey have been arrested and detained without charge or are awaiting trial. Words. In China, censors simply delete the ones they don't like. President Xi Jinping told writers and artists they should work toward promoting party ideology. Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo penned seven sentences and is serving 11 years in prison. Words. Iranian Shiva Nazar Ahari protested for human rights. Saudi Arabian Ashraf Fayyad wrote a book of poetry. 
Filmmaker Oleg Sentsov criticized the Russian government. They're still behind bars. Words. Asked how the government might handle journalists who do not stick to the official line, Thailand's Prime Minister, General Prayut Chanocha, used these words. We'll probably just execute them. In Mexico, Pedro Tamayo Rosas, Manuel Torres, Francisco Pachecho, Anabel Flores Salazar, and more than 70 other writers and journalists have been murdered for their words. Words. They're just words. And ideas. And films. And songs. And stories. And research. And internet postings. And Penn's been advocating for them and their authors around the world for almost a century. In countries like Russia, Egypt, Colombia, Bangladesh, and Eritrea. Countries where words are not free, and free thinkers are in danger. So when the President of the United States calls journalists the enemy of the American people, or says a news organization is going to suffer the consequences, when he puts arts and humanities on the chopping block and denies the meaning of words, it reminds us of other words from other leaders and leads us to raise the question, can it happen here? And raise the alarm, it can happen here. Because these aren't just words we're fighting for. They're the lifeblood of our freedom. Words transcend borders and drive our curiosity. They're how we share, understand others, tell stories, and come together. Words allow us to know. They allow us to wonder, to kid, to joke, to celebrate, to love. Words are truth, and they deserve protection. Protection in Myanmar in Mexico, in Russia, in Turkey, and right here in America. We need to be strong for words, and to be strong, we must come together. Pen America, louder together. And I join in that applause, but if I actually applauded, I would have tripped on my way up the stairs. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is Belinda McKeown, and um, I'm an Irish novelist based in the US. Um, it's my pleasure this evening to moderate this discussion with four terrific novelists and thinkers from uh, around the world. I'll tell you a little bit about them in a moment. Um, I'm very happy to be asked to moderate this particular uh, panel, which, is, which has the fairly juicy title of Forbidden, Too Desirous. Um, and it's about sexuality, the, the sexuality of women in fiction and how that's portrayed. And I suppose we'll also be talking about how that's received. Um, I come from a culture of words. Uh, the Irish literary tradition is often praised for its um, lyricism and fluidity and its love of words. But um, like many cultures, it's one in which the portrayal of the actual, real, visceral, bodily, psychological, emotional reality of um, women's sexuality is still considered a little bit troublemaking. Um, that if you do that, if you portray uh, in fiction um, the reality of, of a woman's sexuality, it's a subversive or radical act somehow, which is extraordinary. Shouldn't it almost be just invisible? I mean, aren't we all here because women are sexual beings? Um, so. I'm really looking forward to our discussion tonight, and I'm just going to say that um, the novels by, by all four of our panelists are available here 
Um, they really they represent a spectrum of not just of nationalities and of backgrounds, obviously, but also of um, women's lives. The protagonists in these novels range from a young woman, a teenager called Maja in Sweden, that's in, in Malin uh, Persson Giolito's novel, um, to two women in their 50s, um, and finally to, again, two women in their 80s um, in South Africa. Um, the women in their 50s are in Japan and Nigeria. And these novels are not just about sex. They are about what it is to be human, of which sexuality and sex is, as I have mentioned, a part. Um, but they are all, and th I think that's what, this is what brings them together tonight as, as suitable co-subjects um, co for this panel. They are all about um, the need, the reality, and also the slight taboo, the, the shock that a woman's pursuit of her own identity and her own needs, be they sexual or social or psychological or emotional or financial, are just to do with needing a bit of headspace, the shock that that can bring about and, and the difficulties that that, that, that can, um, can represent. So that's enough for me from now, and I'm going to briefly introduce each of our panelists. I'll sit to do this if you don't mind. Um, I'll introduce you briefly, and perhaps you could come to the stage in the, or in the order in which you're, you're um, introduced so that everyone can say hi. So our first speaker this evening, our first novelist to join us on stage, is Yuande um, Omotoso, who's a novelist and architect based in South Africa. She hails originally from Barbados and has lived also in Nigeria, and really her, she considers, her and, has, and will speak about this herself more eloquently, but her identity is um, I suppose a triangle of those three places in many ways. She's the author of two novels. Her debut, Bomb Boy, was published in 2011, and it won the South African Literary Prize for first-time novelists, was long-listed and short-listed for the Sunday Times Prize, and also won um, a very prestigious um, fiction prize, the name of which I have stupidly written down in my bad handwriting. The, perhaps mm. you'd help me one day. Etisa Lat Literary Prize. Yes, she's a finalist for that prize. Um, her second novel, and the one we will, I guess, talk about in detail this evening, is called The Woman Next Door, published last year. This is about two women, um, Hortensia and Marion, who are both in their, each of whom is in her 80s. Um, Hortensia is black, Marion is white, and they live as neighbors in an exclusive enclave in Cape Town. Um, and they become closer and more distant over the course of the novel because of events. Yuande has her own architecture practice and is based in Johannesburg. So Yuande, perhaps you join us. Um, Malin Persson Giolito is a Swedish author based in Belgium. She's the author of four novels and has a background in law and in legal practice also. Her most recent novel, Quicksand, is her debut in the English language, having been a bestseller in Sweden and winning crime novel of the year there. Um, Quicksand is the story of a young woman, Maja, who is um, who's charged and is in, 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 uh, on, on trial for her involvement in a terrible school shooting, a high school shooting, in which several students and a teacher died. Um, it's told entirely from the perspective of, of the teenage suspect, Maja, and traverses both her place in time now as she faces this charge and her life as a, t as a, as a young woman um, in Sweden. Um, it was translated by Rachel Wilson uh, Broyles 
and we're joined now by Malin. Our third novelist this evening um, is from Nigeria. Um, his name is Abubakar Adam Ibrahim, and he's the author of a story collection, The Whispering Trees, and also of a novel, Season of Crimson Blossoms, which has been a sensation in his native Nigeria, as have each of these books in, their, in the countries from which their authors hail, I should say. But I think in particular, um, Abubakar's novel has been a sensation in the north of Nigeria, uh, which is perhaps less represented in fiction than the south. Um, and that's a particular Darth which um, Abu Bakr deliberately set out, I think, to confront with this story, a taboo-shattering novel uh, in more ways than one. It's the story of um, Binta, a woman in her mid-50s, a widow, uh, living in, a, in the Muslim Hausa community, who becomes very passionately and in a very complicated emotional way involved with a young man who breaks into her house. Um, his name is Reza. Um, and it's an extraordinary story of desire and of pursuing that which one wants, despite social expectations. Um, and also, I think, of, the, of, the, of the, the, female, the older female body, the middle-aged female body, I should say, which um, seems in itself somehow taboo to write about. Um, Abu Bakar is a journalist based in Abuja, and he is the recent winner of the Nigerian Prize for Literature uh, for this novel, the very prestigious award. Abu Bakar? And finally this evening we'll be joined by the Japanese novelist and essayist and critic Mine Mitsumura. Um, Mine is the author of four novels, most recently Inheritance from Mother, which is the story of um, a 50-something woman, Mitsuki, um, who has to deal both with the infidelity of her husband and the impending death of her, well, impending death is the, is, the, is, the, is the term in question, in fact, because it's the long illness of her elderly mother and with the challenges of caring for uh, a parent. Um, it's an extraordinary portrait, not just of the challenges of that situation, which are becoming all too real for many of us now, the, the, the difficulties of dealing with, with, um, with our parents Thankfully, in some ways, long lives, but those, those long lives bring um, problems uh, with them. <laughs> um, and also, I think, in, in, in Japanese culture, the, even the act, if, I, if I'm correct, incorrect, Mine, please correct me, but even the act of writing about um, a parent, the character of a parent, from the point of view of a protagonist who, frankly, sometimes and often just wishes she, was get, she would get on with dying, is, is, a, is a radical and brave act. Um, and as I mentioned, Mitsuki is also dealing with the infidelity of her husband and with uh, possible divorce. Um, so it's, a, it's an extraordinary portrait, again, of a woman um, who's trying to, to uh, find herself or to find fulfillment for herself, but beset by the, uh, the complications of the lives of others and the demands upon her of the lives of others. Um, Mine has taught modern Japanese literature at Princeton, the University of Michigan, and Stanford, among others. Um, her most recent novel, which I just spoke about, um, won the Osajiri Jiro Award, um, which is awarded in Japan for the most accomplished book in prose. Her nonfiction has also won prizes, including the Kobayashi Hideo Award. Um, her book, uh, The Fall of Japanese Language in the Age of English, um, is, has recently been translated and is a monumental work about the Japanese literary tradition and about the uh, challenges of maintaining Japanese identity and language in the face of the onslaught from the English language, essentially. Um, so 
Her new novel is translated by Juliet Winters Carpenter, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the stage tonight. My name is Samurad. Hi, guys. You're all here now. Hello. Um, it's lovely to have you here. Um, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of ground to cover. Because as I mentioned, the topic of, of uh, or the, the idea of uh, portraying the sexuality of, of women in fiction both does and doesn't um, sum up or touch upon the work that you've done in each of your most recent books. They're all told from the point of view of female protagonists. They're all about um, the challenge for these, for these characters of finding an independence of sorts. Um, of, of coming to terms with the expectations of society that that independence might be, might be uh, sacrificed for other things, family, tradition, religion, in the case of Malin's book, even uh, propriety or, or the, 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 the expected way in which an accused criminal might act. I mentioned a little bit at the beginning that I come from a literary tradition in which writing about female sexuality is still something that's considered very adventurous and, um, and new, which makes no sense to me, but there we are. Which I wonder if you would each talk a little bit about the culture and, and the literary tradition from which you come, um, and how you, as, as a writer, and as perhaps in your emerging years as a writer, how did you, what was your sense of the parameters and the possibilities and the permissions with regard to writing about the sexuality of women. Abu Bakr, perhaps you'd, you'd begin by talking about um, growing up in the north of Nigeria and, and writing, uh, writing about uh, the, the identities there. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm from uh, Nigeria. I was born in Jos, which is kind of um, north central Nigeria. It's a beautiful city, it's lovely. Um, and you know, so, so the north of Nigeria is a very um, culturally rich region, right? But it is predominantly Muslim. And, and that comes with the necessary um, restrictions that you have on uh, the expression of female sexuality, you know. Mm -hmm. Not just female sexuality, but uh, even public displays of affection, right? Uh, 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 kind of proscribed. Um, so. I also come from this background where there's a lot of literature written in Hausa, and it's essentially romance. And it's written by all these wonderful women, right? And young girls. Some of them married, some of them not. But they're writing about love and romance and all those things. But they don't talk about kissing. They don't talk about having sex. So I'm like, well, how do you write romance without you know, any kind of uh, physical contact, right? Um, so in, uh, I think, um, a few years ago, there was this massive um, brouhaha about uh, the portrayal of, um, you know, or there was a crackdown of some sort on, uh, on, on writers in the North, especially those writing in Hausa. Uh, and those novels are mostly written in Hausa anyway. So um, there, was, there was a scandal of some sort. There's, um, a movie industry that has grown up in the north of Nigeria, right? Um, and they also kind of echo what is being portrayed in this um, romance novels. Unfortunately, one of the actresses um, kind of had a fling with somebody, and the video leaked, and she was unmarried, 
you know, so it became a huge scandal. So the government said, you know, we need to like put these people in check. We need to create some kind of order. And the censorship board that has been in place ever since was kind of empowered. And they went after people. They went after romance writers. They went after filmmakers. So, you know, just because, not that they depicted the sex in the movie, but because someone had an affair and it kind of leaked. So there's this serious um, frowning, not frowning, that is, that is more than frowning, right? That is like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like bringing out the sledgehammer to, to kind of batter down any kind of uh, sexual expression, you know. So that, that has always been there. Um, so for me, writing this novel was, was really an act of um, delicate balancing, you know, of talking about the sexuality of a woman in her 50s who is respectable, who is, you know, very well regarded in a society, having a very intimate relationship with someone who is much younger, who is essentially a bad boy, you know, and um, the fact that something like this has not been written before from this cultural, you know, background or wilderness, if you like, was uh, a very tricky thing to handle, you know. I mean, there was the concern that, you know, I want to be true and honest to my character and to the story I want to tell. And then also you have to be conscious of the society and the repercussions of what you are projecting. Mm. So, yeah. So tricky, yeah. Also nerve-wracking, nerve I would imagine. Anxiety-producing, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't nervous because I just felt um, I have a defense. You know, if you say, well, why are you portraying a Muslim woman having sex? The fact is that Muslim women have sex, right? They wear all this wonderful hijab and all that. They're all covered, but they take it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the thing is that, yeah, you want to capture this, that they have this... Um, history of sexual repression because of the intervention of the machinery of religion and culture and politics and whatever that people have kind of used to kind of, you know, suppress uh, this expression that women have and which is normal to have because they are humans and they have hormones, same as guys, you know. So, yeah, it's complicated. Uh, Malin, for you, I mean, tell us about how is it in, in Swedish literature? Is it is are there yeah? Is just there a taboo? first a comment on your yes. protagonist. Good yes. for her. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I come from another spectrum. Obviously, I come from Sweden. Um, I think Sweden was sexually liberated um, even before I was born. But. Um, I actually had a reader contacting me. I I've, I've written a novel about an 18-year-old woman who also ends up in jail. Um, and she tells the story of why she ended up there. And I think that one of the things that I personally think uh, works well in her life up until she <laughs> goes to jail, basically, or maybe not entirely, but is her sex life. She's quite, uh, uh, but I actually had a reader contacted me once saying that she was extremely worried about her clitoris. That is the protagonist's clitoris. 
um, which uh, surprised me a little bit. But that's how liberated uh, the Swedish readers may, are. May, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> what, was, what was the nature of the worry? Uh, Chafing? Or <laughs> I, think that, I think that she must have been a little bit um, disappointed that it's not a manual in the sense that I don't really describe how she comes, but that she comes. And, and uh, she seemed to think that her boyfriends, plural. Um, that I don't think that she, f that was not the problem, that they were plural boyfriends, but they didn't seem to pay enough attention to her clitoris. I don't know why I told you this, actually. <laughs> this is one reader, but um, no, what was your question? Sorry. <laughs> It could, it could never have elucidated by itself such a glorious description. The question was really no. about the tradition or the... Well, the yes, culture so, the well, yes. Came up through, yes. So, she comes from... Maya comes from uh, a very rich suburb to Stockholm where I grew up myself. Uh, and that is obviously a society of its own in the sense that they have their own rules and they have their own... Um, and and um, I think that one of the um, one of the prejudices against, let's say, rich suburbs that are very well uh, off is that the people living there are very free, which is obviously true in a sense. But it's also uh, very closed in the sense that she knows exactly how she should behave and how she should not behave. But this. I do not think, did I do that? No, it's just, no, I don't think that, I think that her sex life, she is a very independent woman, at least she thinks she is. Um, and she does have uh, a lot of freedoms up to the point where she's put in jail. Then obviously everything is taken away from her. Um, and that is the, what happens with her when everything is taken away from her is one of the, the sort of themes of the novel, obviously. But, uh, but before that, I, th I think that it's very easy to remember how it was to be a teenager. And I think that one of the, the ideas that I had, it's strangely enough more, it's easier to relate to teenagers than it is to middle-aged women in many, in many situations, even for middle-aged women as myself, because you want to see yourself as that young sexual character that just that can be uh, beautiful in when she's having sex. Uh, she can, um, um, and so I wanted her to be, to enjoy that part of her life because that is what an independent young woman does. And the funny thing is that the reactions that I've received from American writers are the, I would say, opposite because they are very surprised that teenagers in Sweden have so much sex. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you would be surprised, probably, <laughs> to know that, well, obviously, we don't have more sex in Sweden than, we, than you do in the US. Um, um, at least, I don't think so. I think you might. I don't, I don't have a statistic sort of foundation of that. No, sorry. But no, but we are sexual human beings, even when we're young, aren't we? And it's, it's quite fun to, to discover your sexuality. Mine, um, in Japan, in, 
and I also I'm thinking also of your extensive studies of, of, of modern Japan contemporary Japanese literature. Is it is it in some way taboo to write about a woman's sexuality, a woman's enjoyment of sex, need for sex, interest in sex? On the contrary, not at all. <coughs> well, I don't know what your religious background is, but my religious background, we, we Japanese people do not basically have a religious background. We are not, we are basically a religious people. So we don't have this, you know, because we are not Christians, we don't have this concept of original sin. So there's nothing, you know, nothing is taboo. Uh, sex is just one, you know, it's just one thing in life. It's just like eating or like, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's like taking care of your mother, taking care of your husband, that's part of the sex. And, you know, but it's not as important as it is in the most of the Western literature that I've encountered. Like in the West, romance is a big thing and comes with it, comes with romance is the big thing. This is a thing called sex. And that's one, one reason why my book is sexless is maybe because I'm Buddhist, maybe, maybe that's one reason. I'm sort of a Victorian kind of, you know, I don't have a Victorian mentality, but I like Victorian novels. But the other thing is that, you know, because it's, there's such a freedom about, you know, describing women's sexuality and that women authors are almost expected nowadays. You know, this is, I'm, I'm talking ahistorically right now, I'm talking right now, but almost expected to write about their sexuality, write about their sensuality. There's an, a one writer who started her book by saying, cunt, 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 cunt. You know, that's <laughs> the beginning of her. And you know, supposed to give you a shock volley, but I, I find it very stupid. And, but <laughs> and that's the sort of the contemporary atmosphere in which I work, so I purposely avoid writing about sex, and this is in, in sort of my way of revolting against what people expect from female writers. But it wasn't always the case that, you know, when Christianity arrived in Japan in, uh, in 1868 with the, um, you know, the opening of Japan to outdoor doors, um, um, Christianity came in and all this Victorian morale did come in and virgi virginity, for example, was valorized, which was never valorized before. And it's, it, it just, you know, and it took like 56, 70, almost 100 years for Japanese people to get back to what they were used to in the, during the pre-modern pre, you know, era. And now I think it's a pretty liberated country, but you don't have that impression when you're looking at the Japanese people. They look pretty, pretty straight-laced. But you know, that's, it's not hypocrisy, it's just you know, there's a convention about how one is supposed to look you know, when you're in the public situation and how one behaves sexually. That's, it's just a matter of convention. Yeah, I think it's, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about um, wanting to defy the expectations that you would write about woman, women's sexuality. And of course, you know, uh, w when you're working on a novel, one of the tasks that you, one of the things you need to do is to try to shut out expectations in general so that you can get the book written, so that you can get the, the first draft written expectations, be they of the critics, be they of readers, be they of family, friends, your own expectations are the ones that matter, but they can also be crippling. Um, and I suppose this, the topic we're talking about tonight sort of crystallizes a lot of those pressures and anxieties. And 
and cultural and social expectations. Yuanda, you're, you're in your mid-30s, and this is your second novel. You've chosen to write about two women in their 80s. Um, Hortensia and Marion are, are neighbors of 20 years or so. There's much rivalry and really, I would say, almost hatred between them. I think justifiably on Hortensia's part, considering that Marion was a, a rich white woman living through apartheid. Um, was their sexuality, one is a widow, well, they're both widows, actually, aren't they? Um, was that part of, of, the, of, the, of the picture for you as you dreamed them up? And I guess I'd also like you to touch on the first question of, of for you as a young woman growing up, um, you grew up, you were born in Barbados, spent your teens or your childhood and teens in Nigeria and then came to South Africa. As you came to be a writer, um, what, what sense of expectations and taboos were you, were you conscious of drawing on or being restricted by uh, um, on the page? Thanks for the question, and it's wonderful to be here as well. Welcome to everybody. Um, I think one thing I wanted to say, though, because we were talking about this idea of um, that it's taboo to write about a female sexuality, or and I, I don't think that's actually true. I think what's taboo, what happens is when I read the stories I read, I find that people are, and usually it's men, you know, are using female sexuality for their benefit, right? So there's a way in which it is being imaged that often rings as inauthentic and convenient, right? So it's almost the way uh, women are used as a, a convenient sort of wallflower or, and, and sexuality is in the literature, but it's often certain bodies are the ones that are in the literature. Um, certain things are considered beautiful. You talked about youth. I mean, that for me is what, is what I rail against. Not that there's an absence, but that what is present is so, um, it's, it's, so, um, it's so piddly, you know, in terms of what we know the expanse of sexuality is and the experience of it is, and, and sort of the full spectrum of who exists in the world. So, so that for me is, is, is what's always present. And, um, you know, I always speak more from how I come to story because I don't, I don't have these kind of big, um, views about whether it's taboo or, or I'm sitting with, the, you know, I just know, I just speak from how I come to story and, and I know when I was writing this story, I, I just come at it through inquiry. So I kind of meet the characters and inquire and inquire and inquire and they happen to be women and they, they just so happen to be in their 80s and um, I don't go, okay, I've got to write about their sex lives, I'm writing about them and as I discover I find that, okay, that happened, you know, and then I write that, and okay, that happened as well, and then I write that. And maybe on a page or two, there's something about what it is to experience pleasure, or, you know, so, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I feel like I come at it from a different place as opposed to being bogged down. But to be honest, the honest part is that the taboo for me is just that my father reads my work. <laughs> you know? And this, this, this is, and so I have had to deal with that, but that's my own personal work, you know, as a creative person. And so I'm, I'm working on a third piece, and my promise was that the PG, you know, the rating is going to get, you know, sexier and sexier the more books I write and the braver I get. So that's also interesting how we, but that's very, per I'm not thinking of the, I'm thinking of my dad, you know, who's proud of me, who buys the book, sends them to all my uncles. This is a problem, you know? I mean, I, I empathize. I, I, took the, I took the word cunt out of my second novel 20 times and put it back in 
with pretty much that same <laughs> paranoia and anxiety in mind. And it just went back in at the last minute, almost behind my own back, because I knew it had to be in that particular phrase, in that particular paragraph. But I also kept thinking, oh my father is going to read this. And I, he read it. You know, yeah, so what? It's fine. Yeah. You know, we're still talking. He, he knows sex exists. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. But I mean, it, it does bring up the question again of, of um, as novelists, how do you push against your own, um, I suppose, in internal censorship when it comes to not just the portrayal of female sexuality, but sexuality or sex, let's say, um, the act of sex, um, sexual life, particularly the act of sex, though. Is there, for all of you, is there an internal censor that you've had to, for, for those of you who published um, a few books, over the course of your life as a writer, have you found yourself becoming progressively um, tougher in the face of that internal censor? Malin, perhaps you've published four novels. Perhaps you could talk a little about the progression. The only thing that I know that I've consciously done is more, I mean, because I totally agree with you. When you, you don't, you you come to your subject from an angle of what is the story I'm writing, who is the story uh, coming from, uh, what tools am I going to be using. But one of the things that I have consciously thought about is uh, the way that the female body is being used in crime literature. I mean, I write um, crime novels or novels about crime <laughs> My publisher doesn't like it when I say that I write crime novels. But uh, I write novels about crime. And um, obviously, the female body crime as a combination is something that um, it, it ends up very close to pornogra pornography. And it is, um, if you look at crime literature and you try to you can see that there are m much more female bodies uh, being found than uh, male bodies, uh, which doesn't correspond with reality, obviously. And when you find a female body and you discover the story behind the crime of the f that led to this female body, you will never get to see the person behind it. The female is has a tendency of always having ended up there because she went out at the wrong time, uh, she met the wrong person, she wore the wrong clothes. You have all the sort of cliches of why she ended up there. If you find a male body, you will, you can, I can bet you <laughs> a lot that he has ended up there because he did something. He was either, you know, selling drugs, uh, he was, uh, uh, taking a stand against the wrong person. He was, he was being active in the events that led up to his death. And his body will never be used to, to make an impression of, uh, you know, beauty or... And, and this, I mean, sex crime... I've written a novel about a sex crime uh, committed against a 15-year-old woman, and... In that novel, I, I did that because this is um, because I wanted to give that body uh, a life, a sort of a face, um, and uh, and that was something that I consciously thought about. Um, but other than that, um, I don't think I mean s s there is a difference between using sex or sensuality when describing the crime and sex and sensuality when describing a person, obviously. 
because it is part part of someone's identity, but but to be using it, and and this is this is tricky stuff because you're not supposed to be um, sort of censoring yourself. Obviously, I mean, of course, you you should be allowed to write about crime against women, um, but it would be nice if crime against women actually looked in crime literature once in a while, as they do in reality, basically. Um, they're being killed by someone that they know, that they live with in their own home. Um, not, uh, uh, and I'm talking too far now, but, but this is obviously because we have the myth, the, the crime literature it, it comes very close to the myth uh, and is being used by the readers the, in the same way that we use myth or religious uh, stories, that we want to be comforted in, in our fears uh, towards what is happening in the world. We want uh, the, the literature to, to comfort us, to say that if you follow these rules, you will end up being fine, or uh, justice will be served in the end. And then obviously, if, if the message that we send across is that if you, if you walk out, if you're a woman and you walk out alone in the street at night with your shirt being too short, you will end up being dead. That's not a very nice message to send, I think. And, and so that is something that I consciously think about, yes. Thank you, that's really interesting. And I also, um, you know, thinking about the, um, does, in, in terms of the, the protagonists of, of, of the novels you've written, um, I haven't read your three novels that haven't been translated, but. Um, <laughs> They're in Swedish. So, <laughs> um, so I, I guess I'm asking you to talk a little bit about sexuality in the lives of, of your protagonists, not the victims, not the, not the person whose absence is the reason for the novel, but the people who are investigating the crime or the people who are left behind, the family members. I mean, does, yeah. does, does sexuality naturally come up? In yes, when you, when you and I have no problems. It's so funny because every m nine writers out of 10 say, I, I have my father sitting <laughs> you know, in my head reading. What I have no <laughs> problems with this. I think there must be something wrong with me, something missing because I let my protagonists do everything that I'm not allowed to do. I'm married since 22 years. Um, oh, God. Everything okay back there? Oh, God. Is there we a doctor or anybody with medical experience in the, in the audience? Perhaps you could head back. If so. Or nurse, perhaps. Molly, Molly has given me the signal to keep going, so um, obviously we, we send our best wishes to the, the person um, who's been affected. Um, but it seems that everything's being taken care of. Guys, I'm sorry, I know it's very distracting, um, Abu Kakar, Ma Ma Malin and Mene, but perhaps, as Molly suggested, we could try to continue our conversation Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm yeah. not sure where we were, though. Yes, you were saying that you're. No, I wrong was with saying you. <laughs> that I have. Um, 
uh, I let my protagonists do whatever I can't do at home. I mean, I am um, married since 22 years back and uh, with the same man, I might add. And uh, my life <laughs> really evolves around my kids and my dog and my husband who keeps wanting that we should see each other and spend time together. And then so, so my protagonists are often single uh, having all sorts of sorted affairs, yeah. And I don't have any problems with my father reading my books. That's something to aspire to. I think I'm getting over my problem at this stage. Um, Abu, Abu Kaka, you've explained a little about the external censorship. I mean, very much, you vividly explained the external censorship and the external threat um, in the culture that you've, you live in and have grown up in it with regard to providing an honest or real portrait of, of, of what it is for a character to be a sexual being. But I wonder if you talk a little bit about your internal censor. Did you, have you found over the course of writing your short story collection and your first novel that you tried to stop yourself from, 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 uh, from portraying characters who were, as our, as our title says, too desirous? I can't even pronounce that word. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating because um, when I was writing my first... Um, book, my collection of short stories, I generally avoided sex, you know, um, yeah, some characters had sex, but uh, it wasn't depicted, you know, but we obviously knew what they did. Yeah. Um, but with my second novel, sex was really very central to the story. Um, but then I was also conscious that I didn't want to um, make it a book about um, a story of sex, but a story about sex and its consequences and uh, all the ramifications of having good sex or not having good sex, of being sexually frustrated and how, you know, people kind of uh, engage with issues of sexuality and all that. So while I was writing, um, you know, there were, there were scenes that I kind of cut back on because I felt, well, you know, there'll be people who would approach this and just want to read about the sex. Um, I don't want them to just focus on the sex. I wanted them to look at, you know, this is a woman who has been uh, largely sexually frustrated for most of her life. So my character is 55. She had been married to someone whom she didn't really particularly care about. And uh, for him, you know, sex was about, it's a duty. We have to procreate, right? So open up, that's it, and get over it. And she was sexually, she wanted to be adventurous. Um, but the guy was like, no, just lie down and take it for Nigeria. You know? <laughs> and, and she did that for the entirety of the, their marriage life. And eventually he died. And when she was 55, I was like, you know, I'm a grandmother now, I'm matronly and all that. She just discovers that she has this unexpressed uh, desires that she needed to get out of the way. And she met someone who was able to kind of give her the kind of sex she wants, you know. So I'm like, how much sex do I want to put in the story that uh, won't detract from the issues that I really want us to yeah. kind of focus on? And uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of internal debates. Um, but I'm like, you know, yeah, she gets, um, she gets all kinds of sex in all kinds of position, right? <laughs> but it was also important for me because I'm 
not keen on portraying sex for the shock value. Mm. You know, I just want, yeah, she's doing it. Come on, come and see. Like, so it becomes the objectification of a woman. And that is not what I was really interested in. I wanted to capture the emotions and the sentiments and all the background issues that go into, into having sex and, and all that. And uh, for, for a woman like my character, it's a big deal, you know, because of the way she has been brought up to like suppress it. Don't show any emotion. Just, you know, be a good girl in a way. Um, yeah. But I think it's also, I mean, your novel is also so much about the, um, the political violence and the, 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 the trauma that the people of, of, of uh, Binta's community have inherited at such a deep level and have had to live with. I mean, you've, I, I've read, read you writing beautifully about yourself having to come to terms with the, the layers of trauma and violence um, in your home city and in the, in the, in the city you live in. And um, Binta's sexuality is, it's not just about pleasure, it's about a sort of, um, a sort of response to trauma, I think, a, a, a response to being, to having been afraid and having yeah, been, have yeah, to, had to yeah. be silent in the yeah, past. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's sort of um, an attempt to redeem herself in a way, you know. Um, so for context, she had this son that um, culturally she wasn't allowed to kind of show any affection for, um, and something happens to the son, and she feels deeply, deeply responsible for it. And when she met her lover, who in some ways kind of reminds her of her son, she just feels that the redemption of this boy is in a way a redemption, a redemption for me. For my failings with my son, if I make his life right, I'm good. So sex not only becomes um, a way of kind of expressing herself, but it was also a way of kind of um, having this strong bond with, with her lover. You know, in a way. So, yeah. Um, Mine, I don't want to ask you about to talk about your internal censor because you kind of have already answered that question by talking about your desire not to write about sex as a subversive act in itself, excuse me. But perhaps um, could you talk a little bit about the... Well, what I'm interested in, you know, having touched... I touched on it a little in that last question to Abu Bakar, but the sexuality and sex, sex is not just about pleasure. It's, we, we write not just about good sex, we write about bad sex, awkward sex, um, forgettable sex. Um, how, do, how do you portray the full spectrum of that aspect of a person's life, especially given that you've decided not to write about it? I, I just feel so out of it, you know. <laughs> it's just <laughs> that, um, so of course, Japanese people, Japan, modern Japanese literature have been greatly, greatly influenced by the Western literature. Yeah. So romance became a big thing in Japan, and you know, female body also acquired a significance. But you know, if you look at Japanese people, um, the, what you call dimorphism, you know, the difference between body types of men and women are so slim, so slight that if you look you got two people walking. You can't really tell if they are two boys or two girls, or, you know, a couple, you know. So, so it's sort of not in our sort of physical physique to you know, reify or, you know, to put so much value on female shape because we don't have that kind of body shape. And, but since we have assimilated a lot of Western values, there are a lot of, you know, 
values put on female body and etc. And also love, romance, pleasure, etc. And one thing that someone like Tanizaki did, which I think is great, is that he 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 and he, he, he I mean he he loves pleasure. I mean he had I mean he writes about sex, but his greatest work is about arranged marriage. And that's something it was a blind spot. Japanese authors didn't think that was a topic that could be, you know, um, rendered in novels. But there it is. It was, you know, narrated in a beautiful way. And you come to realize that, you know, marriage is not about, you know, not about sex. It's about, you know, <laughs> a family getting, you know, acceptable families being together, etc. So I think it's sort of that kind of discovery of what we are, in spite of the Western influence, that's very important. And the thing is, you know, writing cunt, cunt, cunt is much less subversive than writing mother, when are you gonna ever die? Because it's, you're, in Japan, you're supposed to be a good daughter and you're supposed to take care of your mother. And that, that you know, demand is much stronger in Japan because of its Confucian past and because of, it, of its, um, you know, long, uh, emphasis on continuing the family name and line. But presumably being a good daughter in that way and um, honoring uh, the older generation of your family in that way does involve putting your own needs, not just sexual but, other, but otherwise, on the shelf for, yeah. for until that person eventually dies. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, it's, uh, so it's sort of, you know, it's a lot of Japanese women are guaranteed constitutional equality, but they don't have it. There is a great gender in inequality, and it's, it's just, uh, sex is not you know, a big issue as far as inequality is concerned. Um, we, there's more, you know, bigger issues. We have fewer politicians, and very few people going into business, and very few professors. You know, those are bigger pr problems for us than Sex is really a, a least of our problems as far as gender difference is concerned. <laughs> I'm conscious that uh, we've been talking about heterosexual um, sexual relationships insofar as we have been talking about them at all, and I think each of the novels, the most recent novels of our, of our panelists this evening, does focus on a heterosexual relationship. Um, you wonder, you could say that Hortensia and Marion have a sort of hate, they don't actually have sex, but there's a sort of, there's such a, a vicious chemistry between them that there is, is a sort of uh, a sort of marriage in the end they, they have to live together for different for circumstances which arise but it's 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 not a novel i mean i suppose my question is really if each of you would talk a little bit about the extent to which in your in your in your country and in your culture um non-heteronormative sexuality um is written about when it comes to to women um you one day would you take that question first if you don't yeah. mind okay so um when you say in your country, then I think of all my countries. <laughs> Even better. So the first thing I'm like, which, but, um, and what I wanted to say first was something I'm working on now is um, one, one aspect of the story is, is looking at the sexual lives of uh, individuals in a family, three individuals, husband, wife, and daughter, divorced parents and estranged daughter, and, and, Part, their sexuality forms part of the story. I mean, I'm still doing it. I don't know if I'll ever finish, but that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and um, and the daughter loves women, you know. So so it's also looking at at that when you're talking about not only looking at heterosexual situations. 
Um, in terms of country, I just need to say I'm always wary of making statements about country. Countries are really big things <laughs> with lots of people in them, and, and I'm not an expert, so I, I, I really can't make a statement here about what is, you know, what is that. But, um, but I think what I find interesting, and in fact in the panel that was just before ours, Mona mentioned it, um, and I'll mention it again because I think it's important. There's a, a mutual friend we have called uh, Nana Sechama Dakua, and she is, lives in Accra, um, and she and a community of people, st uh, friends of hers, started a blog called The Sex uh, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And the reason they started it was they went on holiday, and it was her and sisters, you know, other African sisters, and they went on holiday somewhere, and one of the things they did on holiday was talk about sex. I mean, not only, but also. And, <laughs> and, um, and it was so amazing to sit, to, for the, they found it so just important and funny and therapeutic and sad and whatever, just important. And when they got back from the holiday, Nana's feeling was, we need that space all the time. And so she created an online kind of equivalent of this holiday conversation that was started with friends. And I, I think that's significant because while I'm not making some blanket statement, her thing was, as black women who are sexual, they didn't always see they didn't always see the image out there. They didn't always see the picture. They didn't, and that's what I said when I first said, who's allowed to kiss? You know, who's allowed to, you know, only people who walk can kiss or people in wheelchairs can they kiss as well? Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. We don't, who do we see having sex? We do see it. It's everywhere actually, but only certain people. You know, certain kind of hair, certain kind of skin, eyes, size, you know. So, so I think that's important. So without trying to say, oh, this culture, they don't do this or they don't do that, that group saw that there was something missing and they, and they created the space and, and we can do that. You know, that can be done and that can be done in many different ways. Thank you. Marlon, any thoughts on, on the question? I mean, well, could you also talk a little bit about um, the portrayal of um, non-heterosexual uh, sex um, yes, in, I mean in Swedish literature or in the literature that you've read growing up and coming up as a writer? I agree that it's always quite difficult to to give statements about countries or literature or but but I guess that in in to a certain extent literature mirrors the society that you live in since since the writers active in that country needs the freedom to express basically and also um, I guess the freedom to explore um, and um, and I don't I count France as my second country, France, Belgium, French-speaking Belgium. And, um, and, and I have, I want to say that Sweden has, has, because to a certain extent you go through different kind of generations of literature, don't you? You have, you have a certain period of time where people, where homosexuals, if portrayed in literature or in popular culture, they are first and foremost homosexuals, and then they do something. Their, their sort of primarily role is to be homosexual, or black, or um, Hispanic, or Jewish, or... But then, once you've sort of left that generation, they can just be humans doing, you know, things, and, and, 
and you get to the stage where you just read books about humans and if they're good then it's it's sort of secondary to 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 the story maybe it doesn't have to be the story that they are and i think that perhaps sweden has come closer to that second generation so to speak where where you actually read uh, youth literature and, and children literature where you have uh, where you have transsexuals or homosexuals that are not first and foremost that is not their first role in the story that is being told um, I don't know if this is correct but that that would be my impression that we are at least we're a little bit more advanced than than many other countries in Europe, and I would, uh, and I would get because because the society is more more advanced and more tolerant. But we also have a backlash in Sweden. I mean, as most countries in in Europe these days, we we also we also see the backlash of of right extremists and and uh, the problems that Europe is facing today. And and this will also have an effect on on literature, obviously, not necessarily right now, but. Uh, because it's always difficult to write about the the time that you are presently in, isn't it? So, um, so yeah, I don't know if that gives do you, you an do idea. Do you mean? I mean, uh, I'm, I, I agree. It's difficult to, to get uh, distance from the time that we're living through um, as as writers. I mean, as novelists. But do you do you, is part of what you mean, Malin, that um, the backlash itself will have to become part of how everyday life is portrayed in, for example, novels about contemporary Yeah, I Sweden. think it will. Yeah. I mean, I think it will because we will see more, uh, because you always see, next to the courageous literature that will always be advanced and, and forward-looking, you will also see the more cautious literature. I, I always tend to look at uh, literature for children because that's, that's always where you f you find people are very sensitive about literature for children. They always have very strong opinions of of what you can read for your kids and what they can be authorized to read. So if you have uh, children literature that is advanced, uh, that is read in school, and that um, you know that is being distributed to children, then you're basically fine. But the backlash will, obviously, we already see that even in Sweden, that you shouldn't talk about this, or why do you keep, uh, I mean, what is, that we have this uh, sexually neutral word um, for, that doesn't signify female or male, that is being used in, in more and more literature for children, and that is also being criticized, obviously, and and uh, is this really, aren't we, I mean, we will see this discussion and it will affect primarily the, the, the literature, for ch literature for children, mm -hmm. yes, I think so. Mene, do you relate to anything of what Malin is saying? Yeah, I mean, um, of course, you know, writing about sex is okay in Japan, but there are things that the writers has to be careful. It used to be writing about emperor, for example, that one had to be very careful, even after the World War II. Um, some writer got killed by writing about the, by mocking the emperor. And right now, because the Japanese intellectuals are 